listening to the Hazard Ground Podcast with service members from across the military sharing their stories of combat and survival. And now, here's your host, Mark Zeno. Welcome back to the Hazard Ground Podcast. As always, we appreciate you joining us each and every week. Before we get to this week's episode, that features a former Army officer and combat veteran who's now an endurance athlete. Get to that coming up in just a few moments. But first, our usual plethora of announcements coming in. Follow us on all the social media sites, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Hazard Ground at Hazard Ground Podcast. Of course, go to our website, hazardground.com, and take part in our Amazon promotion. Once you go to hazardground.com, you can click on the Amazon button at the bottom of the homepage or under the Sponsors tab. It'll redirect you to Amazon. So when you're doing all that back-to-school shopping or starting to get ready for fall clothes, whatever it may be, go to hazardground.com first. It sends you to Amazon. We get a portion of what you guys spend, and then we donate a portion of that back to some of the great charities and organizations you've heard featured here on the show. So it's a great way to help out veterans charities all across America just by doing some Amazon shopping, but got to go to hazardground.com first. As well, uh, subscribe to our YouTube channel. Give us that thumbs up and subscribe. Continue to leave us Apple reviews. Uh, These help grow the show. Doesn't have to be a lengthy review. Just give us five stars. Tell us why you love the show. I love hearing the feedback from everybody, uh, whether it's on Apple Podcasts or through our social media sites. Keep the feedback coming. We certainly appreciate uh, hearing from you guys always. All right, with that out of the way, let's get to this week's guest, who is a former Army captain who spent seven years in the military, including three combat tours, all of them, um, ironically, to Iraq, nowhere else. And he has now made a life for himself as an endurance athlete with quite the social media following. He is Jason Wood joining us here on the Hazard Ground. Jason, welcome, and thanks for being here, brother. Hey, Mark, thanks for having me. It's been a long time coming. Yeah, it certainly has. And uh, it's good to note that I think that uh, we finally have found somebody as a guest on the podcast who's better looking than I am. So I now have to uh, take a back seat as the best looking person on this show. Um, as my producer is rolling her eyes very hard in the back of her head. Uh, yes. Uh, I'm, I'm, all right. I'm, I might be the third best looking person on this podcast. Just ask me. I'll tell you. But anyway, brother, uh, I say that in jest. But no, I, I only say that because, again, you know, through your time as an endurance athlete, you've had a huge social media following um, that you've grown. I know you've been featured in a, in a bunch of different places. And we'll get all into the endurance athlete stuff because, you know, um, usually as guys get into our age group, our endurance wanes, yours seems to be going in the in the other direction. Yeah, exactly. Um, <laughs> it's, it's amazing in that field, like in, in the 100-mile-plus races. Uh, a lot of guys that are over 40 years old are actually uh, excelling. And I got a theory behind that, and we'll talk about that later. Okay. Well, listen, I'm, I'm all for theories, uh, heartaches, neurosis, <laughs> queries, and theories. Let's start back at the beginning for you, though. Uh, how and why did you end up in the military, in the Army? So I uh, was in high school, graduated in 2000, uh, and I went to my guidance counselor. My parents had me when they were teenagers. It was one of those situations where, uh, you know, they couldn't necessarily afford for college, uh, afford college tuition and all those kind of different things. And uh, so it was basically on my own. They, I had a younger brother and sister that they had to raise as well. So I went to my guidance counselor and said, hey, what, what are the options I have? And uh, he was a big proponent of the ROTC scholarship. So he said, hey, look, you know, it's, you know, RTC, you'll sign up, you'll get a four-year scholarship, you know, you'll just have to do some active duty time once you graduate, and then you'll be an officer, and, you know, right now, there's nothing really going on in the world, it was, you know, 99, 2000, so, uh, so I just, I, I uh, actually went on a partial football scholarship, partial ROTC scholarship, so football paid for uh, the, the room and board and everything right. like that, and then the army, uh, you know, ROTC paid for tuition and books and that's that stuff. So 
was able to get a full ride, which was amazing. Awesome. Went out to a small school in Kentucky called the University of Cumberland's. I uh, graduated after four years in May of 2004. I got my commission. Uh, and then six months later, I was in Iraq for the first time. Uh, so it was uh, kind of immediate, bam, bam, life's, life's right, in, you know, right in front of you. So, uh, you know, I remember 9-11 happened my sophomore year in college. And I kind of knew at that point, military career, that the guidance counselor had promised me probably wasn't going to be, yeah. be the thing. Uh, yeah. <laughs> That's kind of why I was chuckling as you were explaining it, because I got I got literally similarly the same spiel, except it was for my parents and my my stepdad, who was a Vietnam vet. Um, you know, hey, you get you know he was enlisted too. He was, hey, you get to go in as an officer. You guys don't have to do anything. There's nothing going on right now. And I, I joke around all the time. I tell people like my senior year when I graduated it was '99, and uh, um, you know I tell the story of all the time like all my classmates are going to job fairs. Um, and they're like, you going to job fair? And I'm like, no. And they're like, why? I'm like, I got to go in the army. And they say, well, why don't you get a real job? You know, like that's what it was in the pre nine 11 world. You know, it's just kind of, you know, the old go to war, or go to jail kind of deal. Like that was the reason you ran in the military, even as an officer, like we, we, we weren't the quote leadership factory that we are now that ROTC is known as now. Right. Like that's the, uh, the, the phrase that they like to throw around there. So, uh, I certainly can empathize and sympathize with, with that whole notion that the world changed drastically, uh, after nine 11. When you had gotten into ROTC, did you have any idea about the military? Did you have any background in it? Uh, no, not really. I had a great uncle of mine, my grandmother's brother, who uh, had served in World War II. He was a bomber pilot. Uh, you know, worked a, worked, you know, flew the China to Burma hump, um, and then uh, and then my grandfather had served in the Virginia National Guard. Air, I think it was Air National Guard uh, for a little while. So, but it wasn't you know really. A family thing and then i grew up in an area we're one of the largest military areas in the world i mean we have i live in the virginia beach area so we have you know naval bases army bases air force bases we have all that around us but so you were exposed to it but you weren't really in the lifestyle i didn't understand you know, all the things all the facets of a, of a military lifestyle and what what they were going to ask of me it wasn't until my sophomore year uh, i think it was the summer of my sophomore year where I got it, I was fortunate enough. ROTC gets slots to Air, Airborne Army Airborne School, and I was able to get a slot to Airborne School that summer. And I remember that was my first, like, really just hit you in the face military type experience with like train, like true training and everything, and uh, being around uh, you know guys and gals that had already been uh, deployed and, and coming back and were off to Ranger School, you know, Marine Raiders, all those kind of guys were. In my uh, in my in, in my class that, that I graduated airborne school with, and so it was uh, that was the, the experience that I think I really yeah really learned a lot about what I was kind of getting myself into, and I took it more seriously from there. Yeah, I mean it's amazing because I I didn't really get that as crazy as it sounds. I didn't really really get that experience until after my first deployment. Like I didn't really. You know, obviously I was commissioned, went on active duty, and I knew about active duty life, but all this was stuff, you know, was was a pre-9-11 world, and I had gotten off active duty just a few months prior to 9-11, and, um, you know, went, went and transitioned to the Guard, and so, you know, my Army experience was rather limited, at least what they what they told you about it, and I was too young and cocky to uh, really embrace what I was doing in the military. I, I mean, 
You know, I say it almost proudly. Like, you have regrets about your career? Yeah, I got a ton of regrets. I wish I was a better lieutenant. I wish I paid attention more as a 21-year-old kid. I wish I took ROTC more seriously. I wish I embraced everything that the military had to offer me instead of being a cocky SOB and thinking that, you know, this was just going to be a means to an end for me to pay to college. Right? Like, because that's honestly, that's what, that's what I went into it for. I didn't, I didn't have great expectations for it. And now, I mean, obviously, 23 years later, I'm still in uniform. And uh, it's... Uh, it certainly served me well, but to that end, you know, I, I think it's great that you had that experience at such a young age that sort of brought the military into, you know, got inside you a little bit more. Yeah. Yeah. No, I was very fortunate for that. It prepared me a little bit more because I, I was, uh, I went in with a definitely a more open mindset. And one of the things that, you know, specifically a lot of the illicit, which you constantly tell me is just, you know, listen to your platoon sergeant. You know, listen, listen, you know, listen to your senior, your senior enlisted leadership. Uh, make sure you're listening to them because uh, uh, they're going to guide you in the right direction a lot of times. And uh, I just remember, you know, really after officer basic course, I mean, I, I was right to my first unit and then on a plane to Iraq. And uh, I was very fortunate that first deployment to have some great senior enlisted leadership around me that provided great mentorship for me. Uh, obviously, I had officers around me that were great mentors as well. But uh, really, being able to understand the enlisted lifestyle and, 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 and what you know their years and years and years of experience versus my days of experience had to offer was just uh, that that did a great deal for me as I moved forward with my career. So you got to Iraq rather quickly. By the way, I, I meant to ask you, what did you branch? What did you end up branching? Yeah, so I. I was debating that, you know, during my college career. And, and I, I didn't know if the military was going to be the, the thing for me moving forward as a career. I was a lot like you and in, in the fact that, you know, I, it was a means to an end to get a college uh, degree. Uh, so, you know, I, I definitely had a lot of friends that were going the infantry route, Rangers, all that kind of stuff. Uh, but then I, I, I was kind of like, well, what, what can I really use in the real world moving forward? And so, uh, you know, started looking at logistics type things and ended up branching transportation. Because uh, it's in yeah. your backyard in, in, in Virginia Beach right there, Fort yeah. Eustis. Yeah. Fort Eustis. So. See, I'm glad we, we have this synergy. I branched ordinance because I went to college in Baltimore and I'm like, oh, the home ordinance is 30 minutes away. It's right there in yeah. Aberdeen Proving Grounds. I'm like, oh, I get to hang out here. I'll be in the Northeast. I live near my family. Yeah, I didn't know when I picked that branch I was going to have to go to a different base. I thought that's where I was going to stay the whole time. That tells you how little I was knew what I was getting into as a lieutenant. Well, I got fortunate. Like I ended up, my officer base, of course, was at Fort Eustis. Yep. And then I ended up getting immediately assigned to a unit at Fort Eustis. And oh. I spent, I spent basically out of the seven years, I think I spent four or five, five years at Fort Eustis. Uh, well, technically at Fort Eustis, most of the time was in Iraq. Yeah, I was going to say. My, <laughs> my units were, my units were based at Fort Eustis. And then, uh. And then from there, I, I got a I, after my company command time, I got a, a job as an aide with a uh, major general who was out in Scott Air Force Base in Illinois, and I got the chance to go out there for a little bit, mm. be stationed in Air Force Base, which was a lot of fun. Yeah, well, listen, I mean, uh, uh, Virginia Beach and Baghdad, uh, similar in the sense that there's a lot of beach, just Baghdad has no ocean, so you know, there's yeah. that. Uh, anyway. All right, so you get, like, literally, you said you get to your unit and you get right on a plane and go over in, in 03. Like, beginning of 03, yep. right? The invasion, March well, time, April time? Where are we? It was it was 04. It was, 04, uh, so, okay. it was October, November of 04 time frame. All right. Um, yeah, so I graduated high, college in May of 04. October, November, I was on, on the plane. I, in fact, 
before I even graduated my officer basic course, I was loading the 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 um, uh, Connex with my gear to 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 fly over to Iraq, and then I, I was going to get you know meet my like, unit are there. You so thinking, I, are you thinking like, oh crap, I made a bad decision at this point? Uh I, I don't. It wasn't until we were actually flying into because I got my first deployment with our station in uh, Mosul and, and Camp Diamondback okay. um, up there, and, and at that time it was the tip of what they were calling the Triangle of Death. Yep. And uh, it, you know, watching the news is like, oh my gosh, what what is this? And then we were landing, we were landing on Diamondback, a Mosul airfield there, and then uh, I just remember we're getting off the plane. Uh, we, it was one of those little small like Sherpa uh, planes, the transport planes. We landed and immediately we started getting mortared. And I was like, oh man, I'm like a 20, you know, 21, 22 year old, a kid at that point. Like, oh, this is, this is it. This is where it all happens. <laughs> and, uh, so that was, that, that was when I was like, man, what did I do? Uh, and then, uh, that deployment was, was kind of crazy. I mean, I, we landed, we got mortared pretty often. And then, uh, Christmas time of that year, December before, uh, the suicide bomber walked into the Merez dining facility there and blew himself up. And now at that point was one of the deadliest days in Iraq. And I was unfortunately there to witness that whole, uh, thing. So, I mean, that, that was kind of my welcome to welcome to the war and welcome to military life experience. When that happens, I mean, one, did you know anybody who was killed there? Uh, I knew one. Okay. I knew one. Uh, so it, we were there with the 25th Infantry Division. Mm-hmm. Uh, I deployed with was, those guys too. Weird again. Okay. So yeah. a, lot, a lot of connectivity here. Yeah. So we were up there in, and with them. And uh, unfortunately, I had one of the guys that I hung out a lot with at the MWR and, you know, watch movies, play pool. He, he was unfortunately there in the in the dining facility when it happened. But I think I think 20 or 22, it was, it was a good number of military and you know, contra- contractors right, that right. had lost their lives in that. that uh, I mean, incident. I remember seeing pictures of that thing. Uh, just, you know, anyway, um, d- does that, how much does that affect not only you, but like your unit, the base in general after that happened? Like what's the, t- what's the mood? Uh, well, I, I, it was, I remember just immediate, like the immediate reaction was just nuts. I mean, you got a lot of people running around because where the airfield was and where the combat hospital cash was, on Diamondback and Merez, you know, you had to drive, you know, five, 10, 15 minutes to get from one point to the next. So they were bringing, you know, injured and, and the, the wounded and dead over from the dining facility to the airfield to fly out. Um, and, and I remember they, you know, they were dropping bodies next to the cache. People were, you know, doing uh, treatment there immediately. Um, and, and, and then it was, there was kind of a quiet time, and then all of a sudden we started, the airfield started getting mortared. It was a very, you know, well thought out and planned attack. And uh, we started getting mortared. And so it was very hectic. And then I remember for, you know, weeks after, it, it was kind of one of those uh, situations where you're always kind of on high alert. And, and, and the base, definitely the morale had gone down. You know, it was one of those situations where everybody was uh, spending a lot of time at, at memorial services and things like that for everybody. And so it was a uh, it was a rough couple months, and then our uh, yeah I'd say about a couple months, and then I got uh, I left Diamondback uh, early in 2005 to go stand up a uh, uh, airfield and uh, a convoy uh, staging yard at Kyara West. It was uh, Q West is what, what the short name was. Yep. It was just south of, of Mosul, or I think it was north maybe. Uh, 
Uh, I can't remember exactly, but but it was uh, we got a lot of the convoys coming down from Harbor Gate, uh, the, the Turkey border there, and, and that would distribute you know things all the way through all the way around Iraq. And then uh, a C-130 had crashed on the airfield a couple nights before we had actually gone down there. So we, our job was to go down there and set up the airfield and and uh, start establishing kind of staging areas to to move equipment from that that that, that base. So. Um, we didn't see a lot of action there, so that was that was fortunate. But the time I saw in Diamondback and, and Mosul was definitely a lot. Did you think you were going to die after that bombing in the Chow Hall? Um, I, I mean, you like I, naturally. I mean, look, if they can do this inside of our post at the one place yeah. where nothing bad is supposed to happen, other than you know your steak is not supposed to taste like steak. Uh, you know what else could go wrong? Yeah, and it was a time that then I remember we were still early on. So, I mean, you didn't even have to show an, uh, an ID card to get in the, the dining facility. You didn't have to do a lot of the security measures to, to, to get in and, and do things that you did later on in, in, during the war. But um, I remember afterwards seeing they had posted a YouTube video uh, of the, 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 you know, the guys that were sitting out on the, 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 the main supply route that was outside the base filming the explosion happening. So you didn't see what happened inside the tent, but you saw the, the aftermath of the, you know, the guy blowing himself up in the tent, the hole blowing through the tent and everything. Um, and then, you know, just constantly getting mortared and everything. So you, you, uh, you start having to face that, uh, reality that, you know, death is a possibility. And, um, so that, that you eventually get to that point where you're like, okay, well, if it's my day, it's going to be my day. Yeah. Uh, kind of, um, did you ever get mad I, or angry? I, yeah, I think I think what really when I when I when I really got mad or angry is when I saw the YouTube video and I saw like you know the, how they were using that as propaganda and, and you know having a friend that had passed away uh, in that attack and, and and all the loss of life and craziness that had occurred from that and just seeing how they were using that. I think that's when I really got pissed off about the whole situation and and, and then you know. It was just, it was a rough time. When do you leave that deployment? Uh, I left that deployment a year later. So it would have been October, November, time frame of 2005. Okay. And then came back uh, and then got my first job as a platoon leader um, for a transportation company, 89th transportation company out of Fort Eustis. And, uh, and literally I land, um, getting you know getting stuff off the you know plane basically and i meet my new company commander and he's like hey we're deploying in eight months <laughs> so so yeah i, I deployed a, right around august time frame the next year 05 06 and it was another year-long deployment and during that deployment it was interesting we were a transportation unit a lot of guys and gals trained to drive uh 915s which are tractor trailers but we were being repurposed as a convoy escort company so we were going to go over there and be a, basically a gun truck company where we were going to escort convoys the logistics convoys wherever they needed to go in iraq so um you know all you're going from everybody just having to have basic qualifications on an m4 and being able to drive a 915 to now you got to be able to mount a 50 cal uh you know work work a 249 do all the different things that normally a transportation unit's not really tasked to do so that was a crazy eight months of just, you know, train up, trying to get people qualifications on weapon systems and, and, and things that they had never seen in their lives before. And then uh, get over there and, and do the mission. 
Kind of crazy. Um, in all this time here, are you sort of waiting to do your actual job as a transportation PL and, and start running convoys? You know, I mean, like, is there a part of you that's like, hey, when am I actually going to do what I got trained to do? Yeah, I, you know, I I actually, so my, my company command time, we did convoys and um, you know, I, I, it was, that was a, that was a fun time for me. I loved my company command time, but the, the, it's, it's one of those balanced things for me where like the best time I had in the military was probably was a platoon leader doing the convoy escorts, uh, where, you know, we were, go- I mean, it was one of those things where I got a chance to go to all the places you see on the news, Ramadi, you know, al right. you know, all those places that, uh, you know, were bad places. And, and, and I think I, I, I enjoyed being out with the, the small group, small team of, of guys and gals and, and going out and doing those escorts and, and, you know, and being really good at my job doing, doing that and being a, you know, basically a gun truck commander. And, um, and I, I, I'll say that I took great pride in, in a lot of the convoy commanders from the logistics side being like, Hey, we're going to, Ramadi for this mission, I want Lieutenant Wood as my convoy escort. Like it was one of those things where it's like that, that made me feel great. And I ended up, I ended up doing a lot of turn and burns and, and the guys the, that were in my gun truck uh, team, um, you know, they knew it. They knew we were going to get down to the border of Kuwait and Iraq and, 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 and Navstar or K crossing when they, when they changed it up. And we weren't going to go all the way back to Eric John where we were based out of. We were sitting in the border. We were going to wait for the next convoy to come up. We were headed out again. Um, so I did a lot of missions. I think I did, out of the year I was over there, uh, 27 missions. And those 27 missions could last anywhere from like three or four days to the longest I think we had was 14 or 15 days because you have um, blackouts because helicopters can't fly. So Medivac can't get out. So you're stuck at a base for another night. You know, we had incidents where roads, you know, roads were blown up, things like that. You couldn't get there through the, the, the alternate supply routes or the main supply routes. So we were out there a lot. And out of those 27 missions, I think I encountered uh, six IEDs and a ton of small arms fire and things yeah. like that. It was, uh, it was what, like I said, it was one of those balancing things where you love doing it, but the, 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 the reality was, you know, you were going to see some, especially out there, the IEDs and, and EFPs at the time they, they were doing those explosively formed projectiles. Those yep. those different like, you were going to encounter. Everything. How did you deal again? More more connectivity here between you and I mean I probably logged between six and seven thousand miles on the roads of Baghdad in my first deployment. It's all I did every every four you know four to five days of, of a seven day week. I was out on the roads running convoys from point A to point B. Um, you know, just it was it was the nature of the job that I was assigned to. Um, so I, I lived on the roads more than most transportation companies did. Now, again, I didn't have like five, six, seven day missions. Mine were usually, you know, in the morning, back in the afternoon or, or an overnight and then, and then come back kind of deal. But, um, you know, there would be mornings where, uh, you know, you get two or three months into this thing and you're out on the road and you're just like, you keep getting all these reports, EFPs, IEDs, this route's black, this one's red, this one's black, don't go there. And you just get, there were mornings I would get up with just this sinking feeling like, today's the day, it's going to happen. I, I can't keep, um, as a gambler, 
okay, as a notorious yeah. uh, degenerate gambler, I can't keep rolling the dice and not eventually throw a seven. Eventually it's yeah. going to happen and I'm going to hit a bad number. Uh, and sure, it did happen, but there were those mornings that were just, so you know, I was just, even when I was trying to get everybody ready and we were getting kitted up, and I, I tried not to let it ever show on my face. And, you know, and at, at times when it got really bad, I had to walk around the corner of the building by myself and just sit there for a little bit to breathe and, and not let anybody see me sweating. But did you ever have those feelings? Did you ever just feel like, you know, and, and how'd you deal with it? Yeah, you definitely get those gut feelings, especially, uh, you, like you said, like after about three months and you get really used to the routes and you understand like what, you know, what places are you, it, you it's, it's like driving around your neighborhood. You know, the places that are really bad. And you know the places where, yeah, there's nothing, you know, the chances of something happening to here are slim to none. Um, and it was normally those places where it got really bad, where you're like, oh, there's tonight's the night, something's going to happen. You can just feel it. Like it, there, there would be some downtime where you wouldn't hear much from, from the intel reports and things like that. And you're like, man, they're just building for something, I feel like. And, and, and you'd go out that night, and of course, something would happen. Um, I think the one night that it actually all came true for me was there was, we were going from, uh, I think it was Scania to Baghdad. We were, and we we're taking, uh, we were going to go take route Irish up to, up to buy out. And, um, we were about to turn, we were about to make the turn within like a mile on the Irish. And I was like, man, something doesn't feel right. And then within seconds, uh, an IED blew up, you know, right next to our, our gun truck. And fortunately my gunner was down in the turret. And, uh, you know, he was, he was probably getting me a Red Bull or something like that out of the cooler, uh, to pass up to me in the front and shrapnel hits the truck, shrapnel hits the, the, the convoy, the, uh, tractor trailer in front of us, the, the Connex that was on the back of the tractor trailer just had shrapnel all in it. And, um, and we were just very fortunate that, uh, the, they had buried it too deep into the ground. And so we just got like shrapnel and things like that instead of getting the full explosion of it. But, uh, that was the, that was the moment where I think we, all the three of us, my driver, my gunner and, and me sat in the gun truck for about 30 minutes, just driving completely silent. Like it was one of those, man, that was, that was very close to death there. The pucker factor. Yeah. Yeah. That was the only thing that was speaking at that point in time. Where's your, where's your, where's your a-hole? Um, yeah saying, Hey, loosen up. Uh, but no, I mean, listen, I can, I can totally relate. Um, and for the record, those for, for civilians listening, you know, you, you bring up an excellent point. I've never really kind of talked about this, but you know, uh, IEDs, uh, that is a, a trial by error, uh, science that terrorists use. Uh, and, and I would tend to say more often they got lucky better than good. There, there were a select few of, of groups and cells that knew what they were doing all the time, but most of them, you know, um, didn't ever get it right. Uh, and if they did get it right, they were more lucky than they actually were like, oh, this is how we planned it to go. So, uh, and that's the randomness of combat, right? Like, that's the part of it that is so hard to shake. Because, And I've said this religiously. I know people who have done everything right by the letter of the law, by the training, by the doctrine, and everything that they've learned. They've done everything right, and the bad things still happen to them. And I know people who have done everything wrong, completely foobarred it, and, and made every mistake you could think of and walked out scot-free. That's yeah. just the rent, and and that's the part that gives you that uneasy, queasy feeling. That no matter what I do, I don't, I don't really have any control here. Well, one of the one of the craziest stories I remember from my first deployment um, was uh, uh, we were in Mosul. A, a female soldier was walking out of the gym, and a mortar round hit her, literally hit her, 
and didn't explode. But it, it, it was basically a mortar sniper round. It, and, and, like, that's when I was like, man, the, 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 when it's your day, it's, it's going to be your day. I mean, if, if something like that, with the chances of that are probably, like, one in a million of just getting hit with a mortar round and, and it not going off. It's things like that. I mean, I and then I've had those pucker factors where you talk about, you know, just – you know, ineptness of, 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 of the, you know, this, the groups and, and, you know, the insurgents and people like that over in Iraq. I remember one time we had a, uh, a it was basically a dummy round uh, uh, from a, a, forget what it was, what it was, RPG. It was a dummy RPG yeah. round, like hit the truck. And it was like, what was that? And it was like, it just a, it was a training round that they used for training. And it, it, they were just trying to test out what the combo would do in that situation. So, I mean, it was, it was wild. <laughs> that's a, That's insane. Uh, yeah. I'm sure they were expecting a different result. And I would argue that it's probably for, with them shooting at the chances of them actually um, using a, a, a mortar that works and hitting somebody, not even directly, but close enough to impact them are pretty slim for one to hit you bounce off and not explode is a whole different level of better go buy a lotto ticket. Um, Cause yeah, uh, yeah. That, that, that's, that's your lucky day and beyond uh, to say the least. So this second deployment, um, when it comes to an end, um, month and year, and, and kind of where are you mentally at the second deployment? Is there a part of you that's like, okay, I've seen enough, I've done enough time for me to go home kind of deal? Uh, you know, honestly, so it was, so I, I, that was 2000, August 2005 to August 2006 timeframe. Uh, during that time, I was in a really bad place, like just personally. Uh, I had been married before my first deployment, like literally – Got engaged in college, got married in August of 04, deployed for my first time. And so me and me and my new wife had no uh, nothing like we had lived together for a couple months before I was off to, you know, off to Iraq the first time. So I came back from that deployment. We struggled as a couple. We were still together. And then the second deployment, it all fell apart. So I'm out there doing these missions uh, and, and not being able to reach back home a lot because you're constantly gone or you're trying to find a sat phone or things like that and then you know it was just a rough time and and, and she had rough, a rough time with everything so we ended up getting split and divorced after that second deployment and then i got back to the second deployment and they became the executive officer for the company for 89 transportation company and uh spent about three months as the xo and then the company commander was set to transition. They didn't have an available captain at that point. I had just got promoted to captain. And so they were like, hey, you've got experience with this unit now. Do you want to take over company command? And uh, I was like, sure, sure. I'll be company commander at 25 years old. And, uh, <laughs> and so, uh, so I, I took company command and, and – um, almost, you know, again, immediately deployed that company to Iraq. And, uh, that, that time we were stationed at Camp Taji ah, for six months. Yes. Yeah. Good, good old Taji. So, um, real quick, before you get into that, I, I wanted to ask you, uh, about, you know, that, that emotional time you were going through personally while you're deployed. I mean, you know, one of the, uh, now both my deployments, I was single, didn't have any kids or anything like that. Um, and the only job I had to worry about was keeping myself alive. Like that was the easy part. Like, keeping myself alive and not buying dumb shit, uh, which I was pretty good at. So, um, yeah, I'll never forget. I see dudes with 70-inch screen TVs. I'm like, dude, what are you doing with that? That doesn't fit in a tough box anywhere. How the hell are you getting that home? 
Oh, I'll ship right, it. So, I'm like, you're an idiot. Okay, anyway. Um, uh, but, you know, my 13-inch little TV that I played my PlayStation on was, was more than enough for me. But, you know, the ways you break a soldier on a deployment, mess with their pay, mess with their family, right? Like, yeah. You will automatically make a soldier ineffective on every level. If you mess with their pay, you mess with their family. Um, and sometimes those are connected. Uh, and if the family messes with you, it at 100% affects your ability to, to be your best. Um, and I know this, I mean, like my second deployment, I got a Dear John letter. I was dating a girl for a couple months before I left and, and, you know, broke up me like essentially verbally before it. And right before I left day or two before I left, but then we talked a little more and then, you know, the letter came. Um, and so, you know, I know how much that affects you. And of course you try to focus and bury yourself in work and you try to stay, you know, on point as best you can, but you got a lot of time to think. And there's a lot of alone time and a lot of downtime on a deployment. Uh, did you find yourself going stir crazy and trying to drive yourself crazy? Yeah, I think, uh, that played a role in, you know, I mentioned that I, I, I was constantly going on missions. I was constantly gone, gone. Like I, I wanted that, you know, I didn't want to sit around on air of John yeah. down in Kuwait have time to think I, I wanted to be constantly moving. Uh, cause I think that, that, that it helped me cope with what was going on back at home is just always being in the mission. And, um, and, and there came a time where, you know, my ex had just completely disappeared, you know, basically off the face of the earth from, from my perspective. Uh, she, you know, I couldn't get in touch with her, couldn't reach her, couldn't do a lot of different things. So, um, it got to a point where, all right. I just knew at that point it was over. And so I was trying to deal with, you know, separation and legal documents and doing all that stuff for, you know, a, a divorce. Meanwhile, that night I got to go out and, you know, drive some of the most dangerous roads in Iraq. Yeah. So that was definitely a, a crazy balance to try to strike. But I, I like you said, I, I tried to limit any downtime I had, but just let's, let's just keep going. Let's, let's go, you know, Another mission, another mission, another do, mission. Do you get any emotional relief on the deployment that it doesn't come until you get home? What's that? Do you get any emotional relief on that deployment or it doesn't really happen until you get home? It doesn't really happen until I get home. Okay. Um, Did you ever yeah, end I, up speaking with her when you got home? What, what's that? Did you ever end up speaking with her when you got home? Uh, briefly. Um, yeah, it's, a, it's a, basically a long story there, but, uh, but, but uh, some... You know, she had moved back home to Tennessee. There was a lot of different things going on with her. Um, and, and so we, we spoke very briefly and then right. uh, over and then kind of moved on after that. Well, again, uh, empathy, sympathy, all, all the above. Uh, I know I know where, you're, uh, where, where your heart and your head were, and it's, it's never an easy place to be. I mean, again, the easiest <laughs> – there are times I've said to, you know, uh, now married and post-married and everything else with kids and – um, you know, there are times I've always said where I wished I was back on deployment because keeping myself alive in certain cases was the easiest hard job you've ever had. Yeah. I mean, th th there is literally only one thing that you need to concern yourself with. Bills get paid. Fine. Somebody's got them. The check's getting sent home. Everything's okay. You assume kids are fine. Like I didn't have kids on my deployment, but you, again, you make a lot of assumptions about everything else. That's fine. You know, everybody's in good health. There's nothing until you get a phone call that tells you something. Otherwise, you can live in la la land that nothing else is wrong with the world. All I got to do is stay alive. That seems fairly easy. And, yep. and, you know, you play you play mind games with yourself like that. But uh, it is the reality. Um, OK, so you, you take over company command now and you're going back to Iraq a third time. And this yep. is all literally within a span of like 
four years, five years? Basically, it's three deploy, three year, three. I was gone for three years and five years, basically, it's five years. <laughs> Where so you're heading to Taji? Okay, now you have command. Is is the world different for you from a command perspective? Yeah, a lot different. I think uh, instead of being kind of in it and being like actively, you know, on missions every night and doing those kind of things, uh, now you're at that higher level kind of oversight over everything that's going on. And then uh, the army was kind of different at that point. I, I don't know how much different it is today, but um, we were we were deploying. You know, the, the op tempo was so high. Uh, companies were deploying specific platoons instead of the whole company in some cases. So I, when I got to Taji, uh, there was a couple of platoons that had been deployed without a mother company, basically. So they, they had platoon leaders, but they didn't have a company to to report up to. And so I had my own company and we were going to be a palletized load system, um, you know, company where you basically can drop the drop, you know, drop the load and go. Um, And then I had a 915 company was a tractor trailer company. And then I had a cargo transfer company platoon um, that was also going to be tied to me that worked the staging yard with all the material handling equipment, the forklifts, the wretches, all those kind of different things. So uh, I quickly gained a hand receipt that was like $100 million. And here I am, 25 years old, a company commander with $100 million. Just sign here. It'll all be fine. Don't worry about it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, uh, so I had my, my company, which was you know, a maintenance platoon, a headquarters platoon, and then three line platoons. And then I had two other additional platoons on top of that. So I ended up with over you know, a little over 200 soldiers that were assigned to me uh, as well as that. So that kept me extremely busy uh, just running around. And then, um, you know, obviously you have your, your other, you know, soldier issues that you have to deal with where, you know, you got, you know, money issues, you got all the things that you got to help soldiers with and working with the first sergeant to do, you know, resolve all those kind of different things. You got soldiers doing dumb stuff when they go home for R and R coming back and, you know, getting in trouble. So, I mean, it, it was a lot different than being a platoon leader and just being able to go on missions. As a company commander, you have to, you're, you're, you're really the health and welfare, you know, making sure everybody's taken care of, making sure they have all the right resources, um, and, and making sure everybody can do their jobs. And, and then, you know, the disciplinary stuff that comes along with it. And, and then the, you get a little bit more, you know, the bureaucracy because you're now like, you know, reporting to the battalion commanders and, and brigade commanders and things like that. So uh, it was a little bit different doing those briefings and everything else. But, uh, but yeah, so a little bit different. Were you the commander who went out more on convoys or the one who had to go out less just because you're buried in paperwork? Uh, I, I try to get out once a week. Okay. Uh, and, and they were, the, that deployment was more like, um, more like the deployments you had where it was overnight type stuff. It was quick around the, you know, Baghdad Taj area and back. Yeah. It wasn't a, like a lot of the missions were not going to be overnight. So I was able to take one night a week and go from Taji to Biop or things like that and then come back. And then uh, about six months into the into the deployment at Taji, there was a company that was getting transferred to Afghanistan from, from, from Iraq. And so they wanted us to go down and replace them. So six months into that deployment, we basically did another – uh, rip with another company down in, in, at Camp Liberty on Biop and uh, and replaced them. And then I, I ended up with a, my same company, but another two platoons from other companies. And one was a, 
uh, a head company, the, the big trucks that carry the Bradleys and Abrams and all that kind of stuff. And, uh, every night we get a call that one of them ran over, you know, a whole entry control point or something like that, because those things were so big and hard to maneuver. But, uh, but yeah, that, that, that was about six months in. And then, uh, we ended up leaving, I think it was December of no, Oh nine. Yeah. So eight Oh nine was that deployment. Uh, and then I came back home and relinquished command and, uh, got a break job as a aide to a two-star general. Interesting. By the way, um, tank graveyard on Taji, still cool. Uh, for yep. those who don't know, uh, during the uh, initial, the first Gulf War, uh, all of the Iraqi tanks that were destroyed by us uh, were left at this one base in Taji, and they're all still there. Um, now there's, well, at least when I was there in 05 and 06, they were spray painted with, uh, you know, bleep you, Iraq, go USA kind of stuff, you know, that whole. Yep. Uh, we kicked your ass. Let's rub it in your face now by desecrating your blown up tanks. Uh, so that's fun. Uh, and best chow hall I had in Iraq on Taji. Oh yeah. I'd probably, I definitely agree with that. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's, uh, that was the best part of convoys to Taji. And we would make sure we, we would actually plan to get out on the road, right as sun up. So when yeah. we got there, we'd have time to sit there for breakfast for a couple of hours before we turned around and went back. So uh, it was it was well coordinated to go get a good breakfast at Taji's Chow Hall. Yeah, no, I remember uh, when we did convoys to Taji, uh, my second deployment. Uh, that was the that was the spot because you you'd stay at that warehouse, the truck stop they mm-hmm. called it, and uh, then you'd uh, you'd go get you know Chow. And that Chow Hall was always we we tried to skip past bases faster so we could get to Taji and stay the night there instead yep. of staying the night. Somewhere. Uh, listen, I, I don't, I don't debate that decision at all. Uh, sometimes you got to think with, with your stomach, you know, I mean, I'm Italian. It's, it's what I do. So a good meal is never far away. All right. No. Um, so you get back now. Um, are you like, I, before you take the desk job, are you like done with combat at this point? Are you done with deployments? Is there a party that's sitting there going, okay, like this is ridiculous. Like, you know, I, I, I'm glad I signed up for the army, but I didn't want to be gone three out of the last five years and have a marriage destroyed and everything else. Like, look what all this has done to me. Yeah, no, I, I think I was pretty much, uh, I needed that, I needed a break. And um, the A job was great. I had a great uh, boss, Major General Jim Hodge. He was the commander for Military Service Deployment and Distribution Command out of Scott Air Force Base under Transcom. And uh, and so, you know, that was high-level logistics. That seeing, the, seeing the military and, and life at his level uh, was very eye-opening for me. I mean, I learned so much from him. He mentored me a lot, and uh, and it was great. And then he ended up uh, changing command there and came to Fort Lee, where he took over Sustainment Center of Excellence, which handles you know quartermaster transportation and uh, and ordnance. So the whole logistics uh, group, group there. So he was there for about uh, the last six months of my military career, and right around that time, I knew that was going to be it for me. I, I, you know, I had an opportunity to, to go on and, and get promoted to major and, and uh, go to another unit. But the other unit was most likely going to be down working with the, the 101st airborne with their you know, logistics folks and, and deploying again. And, uh, and I was like, you know what, it's, I think it's time to try with the world on, uh, on the opposite side, the civilian world and see what, see what life has to, for, has for me out there. Um, and so that's, that's the decision I made. And then my last, my ETS date in the military was 9-11-2011. Wow. So the 10-year, yep. 
Um, anybody try to talk you out of it? Uh, a few people did. Uh, I think a few people um, were like, hey, look, you know, we, we still need good officers. We need good people in the military. I had, you know, when I had first tra- changed command and transitioned over to the, the job as an aide, I got uh, awarded the uh, Transportation Corps Officer of the Year uh, in 2009, I think it was, r- right afterwards. And uh, and then, you know, had the aide job. And so it was one of those things where they were kind of like grooming you to grow in your career and, 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 and go, go off and eventually maybe be a general officer. And, um, and for me to kind of say, I'm calling it, uh, surprised a lot of people. Uh, but I think a lot of people understood with the op tempo and with everything that happened in my personal life. Once I got a chance to explain that they understood and, and they wished the best for me. And I, I was very fortunate that my, the general officer I worked for knew people and was able to get me kind of a job interview right away and uh and i got a job immediately after leaving the service a lot of people don't get that opportunity no uh it's it can be difficult to say the least uh i mean jokingly i assume the job was at ups after being a transportation officer right or fedex or something no it's funny uh i actually it's it's for it was for a defense contractor that did they did logistics but i was actually doing business development so uh i did a lot of the going around and basically marketing of their capabilities and everything and then writing proposals and uh, things like that that we would submit to the government and hopefully, you know, win stuff and win work for the company so we could grow the company. How long did you stay there for? Uh, three years. Okay. Uh, it was, that was, I actually met, um, got out of the military in September, met the, the woman who would eventually become my wife my, and, and mother of my daughter uh, that very next month in October, and we started dating and and uh, spent about three years together there uh, in, in the in the Fort Lee area. Me working for that contractor company, uh, got engaged, and then we got pregnant with my daughter in 2014. And uh, that's when I moved back down this way to the Virginia Beach area, where I you know, grew up, called home, and um, and took another job as a, a program manager for a company called CACI. So still working in the defense contracting space uh, today, but just uh, moved on over this direction. Right. Um, At what point in time do you start to realize that your deployment um, is, your deployments are overcoming you mentally? Uh, Gosh, it was probably before I had my daughter. It was probably like that 2013, 14 timeframe. When my uh, again my ex my you know, my daughter's mother uh, kind of started raising concerns with a lot of my you know a lot of the ways I put things said things the way like my reaction to things a lot of different things uh, she saw a lot of red flags basically for lack of a better words care to give an example and, um I short tempered was definitely one yeah. uh, like it, and it didn't take much to you know to set it off like. Where, where's my shirt? Oh my God. Like the world's coming, you know, falling on, on me. Um, so little things would set me off pretty quick. And then, uh, she always noticed the little things like I, you know, I, I can't sit with my back to a door. Uh, you know, alcohol became kind of an issue. Uh, I used alcohol as kind of self-medication so that I could go to sleep at night. Um, you know, things like that, I think were just real big red flags for her. And then, uh, my ability to just communicate and empathize, was gone. No, yep. it, it was non-existent. Like 
you know, we, we had, we had gone through some situations in our, in our relationship, in our marriage, where looking back on it now with kind of brighter eyes, it's like, man, I was, I was an asshole like that. How could I not empathize and, and show some level of emotion in that situation? And, uh, and in that point it was almost like, well, suck it up. We're sucking up and drive on kind of attitude. Um, and it was, it, it shouldn't have been the case. So yeah, a lot of things like that really, um, led to a lot of problems in our relationship. And I was not the one at that point to reach out and find help. I, I, I thought I could internalize everything, deal with it myself, work through it and just suck it up and drive on. And, uh, it wasn't until after, uh, we had my daughter, my daughter's probably like one or two at the time. And, uh, things came to a head with my relationship and we split and the world basically fell on top of me at that point. And I think that's when I hit my rock bottom. And I just remember, uh, being in a days in hotel and really considering taking my life at that point. And fortunately I didn't. And I showed up at my parents' house the next morning, basically emotionally just done crying, reach out for help. And my mom was able to get me on the phone with some folks, the BA, some, you know, local help. And, and we were able to get in with some uh, doctors and therapists and start, uh, start the process. When you look back on, uh, you know, that, how that unfolded, um, what would you change the most, if anything at all? I think for me, I think it was definitely, uh, it was definitely the reaching out for help and, and, and finding someone to talk to and, and being more open and honest with my, what was going on emotionally with me and, and, and things I, you know, I kind of, I hit everything from everybody. Right. Uh, one of those things. Do you think it. that, if you had asked for help earlier, your marriage is state, you're still together. You're on a different path. Possibly. Uh, you know, I, you know, you can't say anything's for certain, right, but I sure. think probably would have helped me, uh, navigate what I was going through a little bit better. Um, I know that when I did reach out for help and I started uh, talking to someone and we started setting kind of mini goals and, and, and setting up, you know, ways for a path forward it really helped. And I was able to, and, and just talking to that one person that the therapist and just being, you know, them finally cracking through the the facade and everything. And finally getting to a point where I was open about what, you know, how I was feeling and talking about feelings and emotions and all the things that a lot of times we're told not to talk about, or, you know, is it, it was something that helped me. And, uh, and I found myself becoming happier with my, myself and falling kind of uh, more in love with myself and who I was and who I was becoming. Because after the military, I, my identity was wrapped around, I'm, I'm a soldier. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm a, I'm a U.S. Army, you know, veteran, soldier, you know, officer, those kind of things. That was my identity. And then when I got out, it was like, who am, who and what am I? And that, I think uh, if I would have found someone, some, you know, some programs and things like that, that I found myself eventually after we split, maybe things would have been different. Yeah. And I, I only asked that from the perspective of, uh, you know, understanding our mistakes and, and, uh, or I, mean, I don't want to say mistakes. That's such a bad connotation in this case when it comes to what we're going through, but understanding the decisions that we made and how they affect others, 
uh, and the second and third order of effects of that. You know, I, I think it's important as you go through this process um, to reflect back on times where you weren't at your best and understanding why and understanding what you were feeling at the moment. And um, that better helps shape your ability to be self-aware enough the next time down the road to understand those feelings and not repeat some of the same mistakes. I think that's the the, the kind of teaching point for vets with PTSD and understanding what you were feeling and when you were feeling it. Um, as you're going through the process of going through therapy and starting to uncover things about yourself, was there something in particular that you saw that you didn't like or, or that you felt that it was just like, wow, like, you know, this isn't me and, and anything, you know, along those lines? Yeah, I think, um, I think the, the specific thing was for me just overall, it was just the, the unhappiness with, with myself and my own self image and, and, and the way I placed just so much, uh, emphasis on, you know, the material things and, and the, you know, making sure that people view me in a certain way and, 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 and those kind of things. And so I, I feel like I faked a lot of, a lot of it, a lot of my life up to that point, because I wasn't truly, uh, true to who I was as a person and, and the values I wanted to uphold and all those kind of different things. So I feel like a lot of, a lot of me was a facade. It was, right. it was play to people to make sure that nobody, you know, everybody's got to like me. Nobody can dis- disagree with me. Um, and, and, and so once I got through that and I was like, Hey, look, here's who I am. Take it or leave it. Uh, once I got to that point, I feel like a lot of, that was a big breakthrough for me. A lot of things changed for me when I got to the point where, Hey, not everybody has to like you. Not everybody has to accept you and your viewpoints. Uh, but, but, you know, you, you should demand that level of respect from people and you should respect others and their views. Um, and I think that's, that's the point where it really broke through for me and, and it kind of changed my perspective on how I lived my life. So you got this three year period from like 2014 to 2017, where, you're working through all this and you're still doing the defense contracting thing and everything else. At what point in time um, does an endurance race cross your path where you're like, Oh, this is, this seems like a whole lot of fun. Yeah. So, um, so my, like I said, my daughter was born in 2014, 2015, 2006, 2016 um, is when my ex and I split November of 2016. And at that point, I was, you know, uh, a physical and mental just mess. Like I stated, like it was, I was 50 pounds heavier than I am now. And it wasn't a good 50 pounds. It was, <laughs> it was at all. And, uh, and so I remember, you know, I remember having a moment where I looked at my daughter and she was like sitting on the floor playing or something. And, uh, you know, I could, I couldn't even get down on the floor without getting out of breath. And, and, um, I just remember being like, what kind of example am I setting for her? Uh, and I, 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 I used to pride myself. I was, you know, I played football in college. I was a PT stud when I was in the military kind of thing, always scored 300s on my PT test, those kind of things. And then had just completely let that go uh, over the, the last couple of years. So I happened to be on Groupon one day looking for something to do with me and my daughter. And I came across a Spartan race deal and, uh, and this was in like May of 2017 and it was for June, uh, the next month. And it was here in Virginia 
And it was, you know, one of those six mile plus obstacle course races. And I was like, you know what, let's, let's give this a shot. I remember obstacle course races or obstacle courses from when I was in the military. This should be fun. This should be a good op- yeah. opportunity. It, it's not but the I, leadership development reaction course. You know, it's, it, it's, no. it's a little bit different. Yeah. Please get bit. from this end of the podium to this end of the thing without getting wet. It's like double dare for crying out loud. And then you're doing an <laughs> endurance race, which is not the same thing. You, yeah, you, I, I used to there's call, double there in American Ninja Warrior. There's a large gap between the two uh, of what you're doing. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, so I remember I got uh, you know I had gotten a local gym membership here in, in the local area, and I got on a treadmill for the first time in forever. And the first mile I did on the treadmill was like a 15 minute mile. Oh Jesus! Like, oh. <laughs> it was really rough. And so, uh, so I went and did the Spartan race, and uh, I mean, there were it was six miles. And I remember there was about 400 times when I thought when I would just wanted to quit. And one of the uh, one of the obstacles I remember specifically is like a bucket carry. It's like a 40, 50 pound bucket carry. It's full of rocks and you're holding it and walking. You got to basically make it through like, you know, probably less than a quarter mile of a little loop with the bucket. And I set that thing down about 50 times. And there got to a point where I just sat on it for a few minutes and just was like, what what has come of me kind of thing. And, uh, but when I finished the race, uh, in Spartan races, you jump over like a fire, you know, to, to finish and, uh, you know, move over immediately collapse on the ground. And I just remember being like, man, that was probably one of the tougher things I've ever done in my life. And it, it was self-imposed because of my physical fitness level, but I want to do it again. And so I started, you know, training and signing up for more and more, uh, Spartan races in the area. I mean, they have them in you know, North Carolina, West Virginia. So I was traveling around doing these races. And by the end of that year, I had lost 35 pounds. And I was at going from the point where I was finishing top you know, 1,000 in the open division to where I was going down to Florida and finishing top 20 in the elite division for Spartan. And, uh, and, and that's when I was like, okay, this is something – you know, this is something that I, I really like enjoy doing. It gives me goals uh, to, to continue working towards and, and things that will give, you know, a, a motivation to go to the gym, those kind of, kind of things. So 2018, uh, I started to I get really heavily involved, start qualifying for world championships and national championships and things like that in obstacle course racing. And then, uh, and then I remember social media started kind of going on an upswing at that point. And then uh, a couple years later, COVID happens and, uh, and everything comes to a screeching halt and and gyms close, everything's closed. And it's like, well, what am I going to do now? And so just started running and (laughs) running long distances. You just went old Forrest Gump. I just felt like running. Yeah. 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 So uh, I just started running a whole lot and, um, I remember, I think it was right around Memorial Day uh, after COVID had out, you know, first started and you know, everything's closed. So Memorial Day weekend, I was like, I got to do something to just challenge myself, like give myself an event. So I, uh, I was like, you know what, I'm going to see if I can run because I had been running a lot, doing a lot of like running extra like workouts and things like that. I was like, I want to run one mile and see how fast I can run one mile. So that Saturday Memorial Day weekend, I went out, ran a mile and I did it in four minutes and 58 seconds. Fastest Jesus. mile I've ever and I was like, man, that, that, that was really good. I, I really like my fitness level right now. And uh, so the next day I was like, well, I'd like to see if I, how far I can run now. And so I ended up running a 50K the next day. It was, about, it was 30 miles. Um, I just around the neighborhood, just 
you know, all the ways around Newport News, basically. I, I did 30 miles, and I did that in about four hours and, like, 15 minutes, four hours, 30 minutes, something like that. And uh, and a lot of the folks that followed me at that point had some level of recognition with ultra running. And uh, I had a few friends that had done it, done ultra races and things like that, and they said, hey, that's that's not a time to, you know, sneeze at for a 50K. Like, you should really consider doing uh, kind of ultras. And I was like, oh, I don't know. I don't want to get too skinny because I, I just pictured these guys running ultra races, being 120 pounds soaking wet. Yep. Uh, but you know, I I, I, I just remember um, finally things started opening up, and in October of that year, I decided to sign up for a 13 hour race, and I almost I did about 67 miles in the 13 hours, and uh, and and I finished second place in that race, and I and I was weighing like 180 pounds and uh and i was like maybe i'm maybe this is maybe this is my thing maybe this is what what i what i can do moving forward and and then um then i looked for bigger races and started wanting to do 100 milers and things like that just been kind of doing that ever since uh outside of the fact that you need more professional help now uh i'll ask the question um i say that in jest uh while you're doing all this and and pushing yourself physically to the limit um, are you cognizant of the mental benefits that you're, you're doing for yourself? Like, and yeah, what are they? Can you, are they tangible enough for you to understand them? Yeah, no, I think, uh, it, it, for me, and this is where my theory I talked about earlier comes into play about being older and, and having, uh, more success with ultra endurance events, like hundred mile races, 24 hour races, things like that is I, I, I truly believe that having some level of struggle in your life and being able to, and having struggled most of my early twenties and thirties, uh, with deployments, with everything else has hardened my mindset. And, and so when I'm doing a 24 hour race and I'm 20 hours in or 18 hours in and things are getting really hard and, uh, you know, you can look back at, and David Goggins talks about this a lot. He talks about, uh, the cookie jar, being able to go back and look at things that you've already overcome in your life and say, Basically, if I can overcome that, I can overcome these next six hours or things like that. And so I think it's really created a mindset for me where I, I, I tend to be a little bit more optimistic about everything now because I, I feel like if I, can, if, if I can start get into it, I can get through it. I can get through anything at this point. So I think that's helped me on, uh, in everything in my life is just uh, the ability to take a more positive perspective at things and saying, hey, look, it's, it can only be hard, but for so long we can get through this and we can work through whatever problem, whatever issue uh, is in front of us. Um, I think it's just definitely helped me in that, that perspective. Yeah, I mean, it goes back to the same idea. I always tell myself, look, I'm not getting shot at today. Nothing tried to blow me up today. So I guess we're doing better than most days I was uh, for, you know, two years in Iraq. Um, but, you know, I, I think that um, in finding all this stuff, you know, uh, there is there is a part of you that gets opened up that you didn't know was there. And I think the benefit to that more than anything is you spend more time with that part of yourself than the part of yourself that's hurting, than the part of yourself that is anxiety-ridden, that is depressed, that has post-traumatic stress, that has, you know, that that is a part of us that when you get sucked in, you know, it's like climbing out of a hole in, in the beach with sand and all you can grab at is more sand. And every time you try to grab at it, you're actually making the hole a little bit deeper. 
Um, and, and you can get stuck there pretty quickly. Uh, and you have to find some innova- innovative ways to get out. Uh, but once you do and you put yourself somewhere else, that hole, you know, is, is much easier to stay out of. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I, I think you're exactly right. I mean, uh, I run a lot of these races without headphones, like so, well, all the races. I've oh, so, so you're far, completely but, crazy. OK, got it. No, noted. <laughs> but it's, it, you're right. It's, it's that, that it's almost therapeutic in a lot of ways because you're you're forced to be in your own mind. Like and, and trust me, when you're 80 miles into a 100 mile race, the demons come like it's 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 hey, why are you doing this? What you know, it, all those just quit. Like nobody would fault you if you quit right now. Just like all those different things that you're you're faced with start to bubble up and, and you're 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 going to be in your head for 24 hours. And, you know, there's no music. There's no podcast to listen to. It's just you and your your mind, and 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 can you overcome the the quitter mind that will eventually show up? And then you know what are the things that you're going to learn about yourself and and, and during those 24 hours or 36 hours or 48 hours? And I mean, there's been times uh, you know specifically one of the races I did uh, back in March. I I, I did 36 hours uh, wearing a 20 pound tactical vest uh, and ran 101 miles in 36 hours. Um, and, and it was on a trail loop. It was a, basically a three mile. You just run a three mile trail loop over and over again for 36. And, um, and, and I, I learned so much more about my own mental strength and just like on top of the physical strength, obviously to do it. But, uh, I mean, it was, it was a learning thing for me on, on how I was able to push through all those different things that came up in my mind. And then the things I learned about my own, strength my own mental strength were uh were, were outstanding and then the next race i did the very next month i did a 24-hour race and um you know i was struggling for a lot of that race um i ended up doing 105 miles in the 24 hours but uh it was funny my i was battling for second with a with another gentleman and something clicked in, in the last hour and i was right at 101 miles um, and when 23 hours came up and I knew I would, I was going to have to push to, to finish second. And I ran four miles pretty quickly in that hour. And the last mile I did in like, it was like, it was my fastest mile. The 105th mile was the fastest mile of my day. It was like a seven minute and 45 second mile for the 150, 105th mile. And I had pushed myself to the absolute limit on that, that mile. But it, it, there was something there and like I'm now I'm in chase of that. It's like, what did I find in that moment that drove me that hard? And, and can I find that against doing something else? It's unreal. I don't want to drive 105 miles, uh, <laughs> and let alone run it. And, uh, nor do I want to be awake for 24 hours straight. And, uh, you, you're actually doing physical activity. So, uh, there's the difference between you and me among, among other things that we don't need to write the list of right now. Uh, so we can, we can get back to the matter at hand. Um, you know, I, I think when, when I hear you talk about all this, you know, you can certainly see how much it, it, it brings you to life, but you know, it kind of goes back to that thing, you know, when you are entrenched and your mind is focused on, um, a thing that you love, it, it just, it brings so much more clarity to other things. Um, and when do you find yourself on these runs with no headphones, you psycho, uh, and nothing to listen to, you maniac? Um, 
like does your mind drift back to other things do you are you going through any PTSD moments are you thinking about combat are you are you thinking about your daughter or your relationship that failed or whatever it may be like you know does that make it easier to run <laughs> yeah no I, I think uh you you definitely do think of the the things that 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 from your past like I, I think those things bubble up um, definitely throughout that, that 24 hours or 36 hours. You, you have time to reflect on a lot of different things and, and, and really do that self-work um, in, in that moment. It's, it, it, you know, it's painful, uh, but you get the chance to do that self-work and really look at yourself and say, you know, man, I, I wish I could have done this maybe a little bit better. And you're not looking to change anything necessarily, but you're looking to how can I improve? How can I make myself better for a next relationship or how can I make myself a better father in a lot of cases. And, uh, I definitely think about my daughter a lot during, during these races. And, and even when I, I climbed Kel- Mount Kilimanjaro last September oh, and, uh, what's that? I said, dear Lord, I guess that yeah. was just, that was like an average day. Just got to the top of K2. We're good. Yeah. No. Okay. So, uh, it was, uh, but, but she, she comes up into my mind. She's my, one of my primary motivators. Um, just because I, I feel like, I'm definitely setting an example for her. Um, and then when I, like when I came back from, from Kilimanjaro in Africa and everything, uh, I showed her all the pictures and everything. And the first question she had is, well, when can I climb a mountain? And, and, and so it was like, man, I, you know, I don't know. Like, so we have in Virginia, we have uh, the, you know, Appalachian trail, we have Appalachian mountains and there's a specific spot called old rag mountain, uh, which is basically a 10 mile, you know, up and down, you know, kind of, kind of, deal and there's a rock scramble it's there's parts that are pretty technical she's seven and i was like well we could try it and so a couple months ago she made her first summit attempt and climbed old rag mountain and loved it did 10 miles we did the 10 miles in about five or six hours and um you know that was a bonding experience between between the two of us and it all stems from things that i love to do she sees and she wants to get involved now too and so I think those are some of the primary motivators for me um, is just the, the ability to, 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 to work through and have that kind of 24 hour therapy with myself and, and you know, build that self-awareness and, and, and start really reflecting on things and growing myself. And then obviously my daughter. Uh, yeah, I mean, it, it, it is amazing. Let me ask you what uh, if, if endurance athlete Jason could go back and say something to post-deployment, final deployment, end of military career, Jason, what would he say? Oh, man. Um, God, that's a good question. I, I think mean, what's the, biggest, the one piece of advice you give to yourself? Yeah, I, I think the one biggest piece of advice is um, hmm, it's I guess just be in the moment, um, be in the moment. I, I think I find myself in the moment more now, whether it's with my daughter, with during these races, um, when I climbed Kilimanjaro and I made the summit of Kilimanjaro and just living in those moments, post-deployment, Jason never lived in moments. Post-deployment, Jason was always thinking about what's next, what's next, what's next, what's next. Uh, what do I got to do here? What do I got to do there? I never got I never really appreciated the moment I was in or the person I was with at that moment, those kind of different things. I, I really didn't do that. I, but now it's, 
I take the time now, like even when you're in pain at mile 80, appreciate that moment. Like that's a moment in your life that you can look back on and reflect on later on and say, man, I, you know, I remember when this happened and I was, I was really in pain, but I was able to work through that. Um, there's not a lot of those moments that I had back post-deployment, Jason, that I can look back on and really reflect on and say, man, I, I really spent time and self-reflected on that moment and, or, or lived in that moment. It just didn't exist. Does your daughter ever ask you about combat? Uh, I think she's starting to. She's starting to kind of understand that, that daddy did things you know, overseas and was in, in war and stuff like that. Um, she doesn't ask me a whole lot about it. Um, you know, it's not something that's, I'll be honest. I have a few things here and there. Uh, but most of my stuff is honestly in a closet. Um, and so I don't have a lot of like uh, my, I love me book and a lot of the awards and stuff I have. I think there's going to be a, definitely a time and place for, you know, when we, her and I have those kind of discussions and conversations. Uh, I think they're starting to bubble up. Uh, but right now she just wants you know, she just wants daddy to take her to the pool and take her to the beach and take her to Bush Gardens and kind of saying things All like right. that. But, uh, well, I but mean, yeah. practice the answer. It's the best, best piece of advice I can give you. Um, yeah. If you're not prepared for it, um, you don't look like you uh, ever want to talk about it again. So people don't ask. So, yeah. I mean, that's just yeah. small piece of advice uh, from past mistakes I made when I was asked and didn't answer. Not by kids, just by people in general. Um, yeah. You know, and uh, not regret per se, but, you know, uh, I, I think it goes back to that being ready to talk about it uh, and and acknowledging the fact that you have to answer that question sort of shoves you into ready. Um, yeah. You don't you don't think about it because you just sort of are able to put it in the in the file cabinet in your brain and leave it there. And no one's going to open that file cabinet up at you. But um, nobody asked you unless somebody asked you to go into that file cabinet. You never go there. You know, it's it's so you just. Start thinking about what you want to say and how you want to say it. It's the best piece of advice I can give you. Um, so you have uh, also in your time as an endurance, I mean, like uh, we, we've had a, a lot of you know notable people on this show, but like I, you have one of the larger social media followings of people we've had on this show. Did that develop organically or? Uh, yeah. So, so it, it's crazy. A lot of it is, so yeah, a lot of it's developed organically through the, the Spartan racing and ultra running and those kind of different things. And then uh, lately, I've had a crazy boom of social media. Like so, like literally within the last couple of weeks, uh, I started just creating reels, uh, just talking about just single life in your forties, and just kind of being more myself. I think a lot of the content I was creating previously was like built around like you know how do I, how do I help motivate and and, and and you know talk about you know ultra running and things like that. And then it got to a point where just growth became stagnant. I was like, you know what? Like, I'm just going to do the things I like to do that make me laugh, that make my friends laugh and post it on social media. And, and it kind of just exploded. And over the last month I've gained about 30, 40,000 followers. Wow. Uh, yeah. So it's been a, it's been a wild couple of weeks uh, just from reels that, you know, I've posted just, you know, having fun. And I think that, uh, you know, I think people are, uh, are, able to see more into my personality now. Uh, I think a lot of people just saw me as very uh, intimidating. This guy that runs a hundred miles, you know, all these kind of different things. And now that I'm kind of just having fun with, you know, making people laugh and making myself have laughs and have fun with 
the content I'm creating, I think it's showing through. Would Captain Jason Wood been able to have had that kind of fun with himself? No, no. Why? No, it, it was, I, I think it was, it was, it was all serious. Like, I was going to say, I get the sense that you took yourself too seriously and like you didn't allow yourself to, uh, to have fun, you know, and, and I'm, I'm not answering the question for you. Um, yeah. but I'm just kind right. of gleaning from the conversation. You know, one of the things I was thinking of when I asked you that question about what would you endurance athlete, Jason tell post deployment, Jason, you know, I felt like you were going to say, give yourself a little bit of grace. Like I, I keep hearing that, you know, like, forgive yourself a little bit more. Stop being so hard on yourself. Stop stop acting like things are, are life and death. Like that was kind of a sense of what I was picking up from our conversation. No, you're that, that's probably another very good one I probably should have told myself. I mean, that's exactly. <laughs> I, yeah, I mean, <laughs> I'm going to write that down. But, uh, but no, I mean. I want to see it in a reel coming up. I want to see. Yeah. I want you to play out the reel of, of endurance athlete Jason talking to, to Captain Jason. There you go. Uh, that, but you're exactly right. I mean, I, I did not give myself an, an inch of credit for a lot of different things. I mean, it was one of those things where it, it was just literally, if I made a mistake, I was going to be the hardest person on myself for making that mistake. And and, and I wouldn't let it go. And I, I was definitely more of a perfectionist. I was definitely very serious about things and, and what I wanted to do in my life and everything. I was not, I was not able to let go and just be like, hey, you know, this is me. Um, but, but yeah, I think that that's grown uh, yeah, I mean, over you time. You realize though, that not being able to let go that, that, that is, and I don't think we talk about it enough when it comes to PTSD because we talk so much about an event based thing, right. But not being able to let go of things, um, is both trauma related, but it's also training related, right? We don't, we're not taught to forget mistakes in the military. It's not part of what we do. We want to learn yeah. from them. But what do we do with everything we do? We write it down and it's on a piece of paper and it's signed at the bottom by somebody important or at least somebody who yep. thinks they're important. So we don't ever repeat the same mistakes again. Like that is, in, that is ingrained in our training to not forget mistakes because we will repeat them if we don't write them down. And when you write it down, you are not only etching it on paper, but you're etching it into your memory as well, which is why we do that. And so that sort of training predisposes us to don't forgive, don't forget. Because if you make the mistake again next time, it could cost you dearly kind of mentality. And that's a, that sometimes can be a dangerous place to be. I know I completely agree. And, and you spend a lot of time dwelling on those things instead of just looking ahead and like saying, hey, look, that was the past. I learned from it. Let's grow from it and move forward. Instead, you're just constantly remember when you did that. Remember when you did that. Yeah. Uh, and it's, it's very unhealthy. But, yeah, you're exactly right. That, I'm definitely writing that down and doing a reel now. <laughs> um, what uh, what is next for you from an endurance race standpoint? Like, how, how much longer do you do you know how much longer you want to do this? Do you want to continue to work in this world? Do you just want to go back to being like regular Jason? You know, the defense, Department of Defense contractor Jason? Yeah, no, I I don't think I do. Uh, to be honest, I think uh, <laughs> I think I, I enjoy this a little too much. So. Uh, it's now it's just becoming how far can you push yourself? I mean, so, you know, the hundred mile mark has been something that I've achieved multiple times. Now um, I did three 100 mile races in three months back a couple months ago. Uh, one of those races was with the 20 pound tactical vest on um, a lot of these events. I try to use as a platform to raise awareness and funds for um, 
other veteran type organizations. The one that I did with the 20 pound vest was to raise uh, money for canines for warriors. They, you know, basically save canines from kill shelters, train them up and provide them to veterans in need that, you know, have, you know, service animal needs to whether they have PTSD or uh, other things. So, um, so the next big thing that I want to do is actually, I was trying to plan it for September, but it's probably going to, it makes more sense for November. Uh, so we're going to do it in November, but I'm going to do a 48 hour treadmill run. Uh, so I'm going to spend 48 consecutive hours on a treadmill and going uh, absolutely and nowhere, going absolutely nowhere. <laughs> so, uh, so, wait, let's, so, let's just clarify 48 hours running on a treadmill, just on a treadmill. I got you. It's actually going to be moving, right? <laughs> well, most of it moving like the goal. So I, I honestly have a goal. Uh, I would love to be able to get, the, the reach goal is 200 miles in the 48 hours. So that's going to require Jesus. some, that's going to require some level of, of making sure I'm running, walking a lot of the hundred mile runs, you know, you can run a majority of the hundred miles. Like the first 50 miles for me are, are pretty good in a hundred mile race. I can, I, I do that in about eight hours, which is about a nine minute, 45 second mile for 50 miles. And then after that, like then once you get to mile 80, that's when you're really doing a power hike, run combination if you want to run under you know 24 hours or, or under 20 hours those kind of things but uh but with 48 hours you're definitely going to be doing you know a lot more probably walking running walking running gotcha. so trying strategy out for that right now uh are you surprised that your body physically is held out i mean are you nagging with any injuries or dealing with anything no i uh, so i i when i came off of um the last one I did, I knew my body was like, okay, we need a little bit of a break. Um, I, I could tell, but nothing was injured. Like I, nothing was, nothing was hurt. It was just, uh, my, my, I just needed to give my body that break from that many miles for, for five consecutive months, six consecutive months when you include training and everything else. Uh, so I took about, taking about a month or two break, but I, I feel great. And, um, and, and I, I don't know, we'll see if, if something ever does finally fall apart on yeah. me, but yeah. for the most, it's 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 all held together so far and i turned 41 in a couple weeks so we'll see (laughs) give it three years i felt great at 41 uh since then i've had three surgeries i'm headed for a fourth uh things broke down very quickly uh on this old man so um yeah uh no seriously though i I wish you the best of luck with it i mean it's it's uh it's unreal um yeah Yeah, i appreciate I, I, i don't i don't know how physically my body could stand the and look, I, I did a couple of marathons, right? And I realized after the second one, I'm like, I don't need to run this far unless anybody's chasing me. So uh, I'm not, I'm not going to continue to do this. I, I, I run for pleasure now, right? Like I, when I want to clear my head or I just feel like I want exercise or, you know, it's a nice day, just go for a run, get a little sweat in. Um, you know, it's, it's more mentally therapeutic right now. But for, for you to be able to do that at the level that you do is just, it's utterly amazing. There's a, you know whatever, there might be 200 Navy SEALs uh, in, in the world, and, and there's probably 150 endurance athletes who can do what you do. So it's a it's a very small population, to say the least. I still think you're freaking nuts, but, um, you know, to each their own. Everybody's got to have a vice, right? Mine's, my, mine's booze and cigars and brown liquor, and, and you like to run. Knock yourself out. Um, gl- gl- glad we can finally diverge on something because we've been connected through a lot of other things. Uh, yeah. I mean, look, I still work out. I do it in pain. But, you know, like you, the only, re- the only reason I'm still working out at this rate is when I get old and I can't find my shirt, I say, screw it. I'll just go shirtless and everything's fine. So you can relate to that, I yeah. assume. There you go. Problem, problem solved. No, so it's always funny because I'm always like one of the bigger guys on the star line. Cause I, oh, really? I, I'm, 
I'm, I'm about 185 pounds, 190 pounds. Um, I stay there pretty, pretty easily unless I, you know, unless I string together a couple months of like just back to back to back hundred milers or something like that. I normally maintain. And so when I get to a start line, it's people look at me funny, like, Oh, is you sure? And, uh, and then later on in the race, I'll get to like mile hundred and like, you'll have some of the smaller guys still looking at me like, you're still around. Like what is, what's going on? But, uh, that's kind of how I got a lot of the social media following too, was a lot of specifically men uh, reach out and say, Hey, how do you maintain that, that level of muscle mass? along with running this, uh, these crazy distances and stuff. And, and for me, it's a lot of food and, uh, just staying in the weight room. I still, you know, lift four or five days a week and, and I'm able to get my runs in and everything on top of that. It's just, for me, it's always been about prioritization of time, uh, and what's important to me. And I, I think just the, the running is something that I love to do, but like you said, like I, I, I don't, you know, I don't necessarily want to lose muscle mass and, you know, be, yeah, be well, really- I keep telling people that I've been trying to kill the meathead in me for the better part of five years right now, and it uh, it, it won't die at all. <laughs> uh, I'd love for it to die. Uh, I'd love to just be able to go there and like you know put up 135 pounds and call it a day, but that's just not in my DNA at this point in time. So um, maybe after the fourth surgery, who knows? Uh, and I've had two <laughs> I've had two shoulder surgeries, so I've torn both labrums. Um, so it, it's a it's a long road back uh, from surgery, and I, I, I say that as a friend, but we have a. We've gotten off the beaten path here. All right. Um, make sure you guys follow Jason at J Floyd Wood, all one word, J Floyd Wood, uh, on Instagram to see all the wonderful reels that you're making. Uh, and, and, and the great, co- it is great content. It's funny. It makes me laugh. Uh, I, I will say that much. It's, uh, uh, you, you, your, your style is unique and, and I, I understand why you've, you've gained a, a following. But, you know, I think in, in the big picture, man, it's, uh, you know, there, there's, there's obviously a ton to be proud of there, but, you know, don't forget to be proud of the old stuff, not just the new stuff, right? Sometimes pride is one of those emotions that also, you know, is a negative connotation. Um, and we tend to only be proud of the things recently that we're doing and we leave in the past the things that we should be proud of. And that goes back to kind of forgiving yourself a little bit. Product of your experience, right? Product of your environment. You're here today because of who you were before. And um, that person might not be perfect, but they certainly weren't wrong, if that's a, a, a better way to look at it, at least. And, and, I, and I love what you're doing for vets. I love that you're speaking out, and I love that you're so open about your experience. Uh, that's super important. We need more of us who are, who are willing to share their story and their struggles. Um, and, and, again, with me, it took multiple veterans to, to mention their story to me through this show and other outlets. But, you know, specifically there were a couple of them who really hammered home to me, Mark, go get the help you need. Like, honestly, don't wait any longer. You've waited this long. Don't wait any longer. Uh, and, and I think that's a great message that you're sending to other people. So certainly appreciate all, all of that and everything that you're doing, brother. Hey, I appreciate it. I, I really, uh, I love having the opportunity to come on here and speak with you again. It was a great conversation. I, I, I really, uh, what you're doing for the military community and veterans and, and, and mental health and everything there and raising awareness, and having some great guests on, uh, you're doing a great thing, brother. And I appreciate it. Oh, thank you. All right. Jason Wood, thanks for being part of the hazard ground. Thank you. You've been listening to the Hazard Ground Podcast, hosted by Mark Zeno. If you have an interesting story to tell and you'd like to be on the show, send us an email at producer at hazardground.com. And if you like the show, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review on Apple Podcasts. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.